Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Many of you have commented on social media asking why my wife, Diana Kander, has not been doing the ad reads with me on Majority 54 since we restarted. And the answer is because she has her own podcast that is fantastic. And I asked her to come on today and tell you about it. That's right. I'm Diana Kander, and I'm starting a competing podcast to Majority 54. That is not true. It's called Professional AF, and we're just starting season three, and this season is entirely dedicated to studying the art of failing well, using it as a stepping stone to bigger and better things. And half the interviews this season are with thought leaders and authors about the science of doing it correctly, and the other half are after-action reviews with people who have been at the front lines of very public things that didn't exactly work out, like the creator of the digital camera at Kodak, the creator of the Amazon Fire Phone, the creator of New Coke. My favorite that I'm looking forward to is Troy Price, the chairman of the Iowa Democratic Party during the caucuses earlier this year. Yeah, I think it's like the first big interview that he has done about that process. It's an awesome podcast. Uh, obviously, it is not a directly competing with Majority 54 podcast, but it's called Professional AF. You can get it wherever you download your podcasts, and I'm super proud of the work that Diana's done, and uh, you'll really enjoy season three, and you'll probably want to go back and listen to the other seasons. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps the 54% of us who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those of us who did about the most divisive issues in our country. And now I'm going to throw it to Ravi to introduce our guest today. I'm excited to introduce Adisu Demesi, who's fresh off of representing the Biden campaign and helping to run the Democratic National Convention. He's also the executive director of More Than a Vote, which is uh, a voting rights group started by LeBron James and a group of prominent black athletes and entertainers. And I've known Adisu since 2005 when he was fresh off the Kerry campaign uh, and we attended law school together. We both attended law school and didn't attend law school together because we both eventually <laughs> left um, pretty quickly to go work on campaigns, him on Hillary, me on Obama. And then we reunited in the general election in Ohio and helped win that state for Obama. We were actually together on election night uh, when the election was called for Obama. And Adisu has gone on to help manage a series of high-profile races, including Cory Booker's uh, Senate election Cory Booker's presidential campaign. He was a senior member of Hillary Clinton's campaign team. Oh, he was also with Gavin Newsom and helped him when the, he was the campaign manager for Gavin Newsom's uh, successful gubernatorial campaign. I could go on, uh, but Adisu is Please joining don't. us. <laughs> yeah, Adisu is uh, joining us fresh off of his successful Democratic National Convention was successful for all of us. So uh, on behalf of all of our listeners, I want to thank you, Adisu, for a job well done. 
Appreciate it. Thank you. It was a it was a journey, as I said to you off air, but uh, a special one. And I hope everybody got a lot out of it. Quick question. You do the voting rights stuff for LeBron James and his organization, right? I do. As of as of now, <laughs> uh, I could do it full time. Do you text with LeBron James? No. Oh. I mean, yeah. I'm on I'm on calls with him occasionally. Okay, so you uh, but you know you're you're like LeBron James, like like your first name basis with LeBron James. Uh, sure, yeah, I am. That's the that's the entire introduction from now on. Okay, it's yeah, like, there you go. Is, yeah, I don't know, Robbie, why you I'll went through all that. that other stuff. I'll recut that. Um, but you know, just <laughs> to to set the context, uh, in March, uh, I called Adisu up in the middle uh, when it became apparent that Biden was going to be the nominee, and and Adisu had been for a few weeks, maybe even a few months at that point, taking a break, which uh, he doesn't do very often. And I asked him, hey, you're going to you're going to go and you're going to work on this campaign, right? This general election. He said zero percent chance. So, Adisa, what do you have to say for yourself? I've said that many times over the last 20 years, and yet I keep getting sucked back in like Michael Corleone. Uh, but honestly, it was like, you know, the, the combination of the pandemic and just watching what Donald Trump was doing to this country. And you put on top of that what happened with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery this spring. It was just too much. So. I'm back, I guess. Uh, I can't can't help it. And uh, it's too it's it's too important, honestly, to sit sit this one out. So the convention was great. Now I've moved on to doing the more than a vote stuff. I just you know, we all have to do what we got to do to to make this make a change come November. Well, given the fact that we have you here, we're sitting in the middle of the RNC, the Republican convention. COVID-19, while others criticized without solutions. President Trump's swift action saved lives. And as leading Democrats want to keep businesses closed down, our president is leading the way for a full economic recovery. The best is yet to come. It seems like, you know, we used to criticize Romney in 2012 as we, I think we called him the Etch-a-Sketch candidate. And this seems like it's almost the Etch-a-Sketch convention. Like if you were watching this convention, you'd be left with the impression that Trump has definitely managed the virus response. He's been a fierce ally to the black community and has improved America's standing in the world. Uh, before we get into the, the nitty gritty here, just at a thousand foot level uh, for both you guys, is the convention resonating with the voters that Trump needs to win this election? I I don't think so. I think what he is doing is ping-ponging between trying to broaden his his base and trying to double or triple down or quadruple down on his base. And he hasn't picked a lane yet and thus is being kind of ineffective a little bit in both. But without question, he's trying to etch-a-sketch his record. It's pretty amazing to watch a parade of the few, uh, you know, Republicans of color, especially black Republicans that exist uh, at a high profile, all of them getting speaking spots. But I don't think that the message is breaking through because there's no one message. Every day it's the country is a hellhole that Biden will take further into further to the left. And Donald Trump has made this country the best it's ever been. And we're going to keep making America great again. There's no coherence to it. You know, what we tried to do last week at the Democratic convention was actually tell a story over the course of four days. And after two days, I don't know what the story that Donald Trump is trying to tell or the Republicans are trying to tell is. Yeah, I, th I think that there's a danger that it can work if we don't effectively respond. And by we, I mean, you know, regular folks, just the whole mission of the pod, right, is, is people talking with the folks in their network. 
And I was thinking about this last night. I think the key is they're just trying to shotgun approach this, right? They're trying to just put out so many different arguments and throw so many to the wall that they figure, well, one of them's going to stick. And I think the key then is not to fall into that trap. Like if you're talking to somebody who's throwing a bunch of these things at you, you know, oh, well, he shut down the the travel from China. Oh, well, he, you know, all this stuff, right? I think you got to stay out of those little BS moments that they're trying to focus on. And you got to pivot to what all elections are about, which is the future. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I actually think one of the most effective arguments we can make individually within our own little circles is who do you want in charge of making a vaccine available to everyone next year when that actually becomes a reality? Because no matter what your view is as an individual, you know, if you're at all on the fence, but you lean toward Trump because of these social issues or because you don't like liberals or whatever it is, it's really hard if you're at all rational to look at the situation and say, well, he has clearly handled this virus really well. And, you know, you may have pride of the fact that you voted for him in the first place, get in the way. So you're going to litigate what he did well or didn't do well in the past. But when it becomes about the future, that's when it, it becomes real. So I think making it about the future and about the virus at the same time is the most effective thing we can do to counter this scattershot approach. You know, maybe I'll be the uh, the devil's advocate here and even if we think that we're the New England Patriots here and they're the Browns, you know, we need to go into Sunday over preparing, right? And think through like if they do everything right, what does that look like? And so I think like so even if you think that they need an inside straight to win this election, which I don't think, I think they're a lot closer than we give them credit for, um, given just all the tools at their disposal, whether it's the electoral college, voter suppression and dog whistle politics. So I think right now it's um the NBC Wall Street Journal poll from last weekend. This is post-DNC, I think, and pre-RNC, or at least taking into account a little bit of the, the Democratic Convention, put 13% of voters in play right now. Uh, it gave us a lead, but it says that there's still a lot of people who can shift between now and the election. And it also says that although Biden is winning most categories, Trump is winning the critical category of who is best on the economy. And so that tells you a little bit about what Trump is trying to do. And if you look at the past two nights, and we'll get into this a little bit, he's trying to paint a robust picture of his economic record, and he's blowing all the dog whistles he possibly can uh, in order to win this election. And I think um, I think about this quote from Mike Murphy uh, from yesterday, where he said, you know, Trump has uh, hit a few singles, and you know, the cosmopolitan Dems like myself, um, he says, you know, you're not hearing the dog whistles, but they're there. Uh, and that's coming from somebody who's done this effectively going all the way back to 88, um, where Dukakis was up 17 in the summer and still managed to lose that election. So what's keeping you two up at night right now? Um, starting with you, Adisu, like what do you, what do you get worried about as you think about the next few weeks and months ahead? First of all, gratuitous shot at the Browns there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as a, I, I could say the I mean, Bills. I could say the Bills easily because yeah, nobody has lost. Could put the Bills out there. Nobody's but, uh, lost more it, to the Patriots. That's funny. I was. I found that comparing us to the Patriots far more objectionable. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But uh, look, I mean, what keeps me up at night is what I'm working on right now, which is voter suppression. You know, COVID. All of these things that are going to make it harder for people who think like me and, and vote like me to ultimately vote. And what Trump is doing with firing up his base is sort of making sure that they will run through a wall to, to vote for him. You know, who knows what we're going to what it's going to look like in in October and November in terms of our public health situation to make sure that people 
are ready and willing and able to do whatever it takes to cast their ballot. And that requires some enthusiasm and uh, for our nominee and not just you know, opposition to the to the Republican nominee. And so it's up to all of us in, in a lot of ways to make sure that those people who are Trump curious in the middle uh, know where he's failed and where where Biden would succeed. Yeah, I agree. I, obviously, I, I share your view that the biggest concern is whether or not people are actually able to vote and whether voter suppression is effective. Uh, my second greatest concern right now is whether they can eventually be effective with this argument of about the suburbs, which I think at first a lot of people just found ridiculous. But if you think about it, from the very start, the strategy here has been write off the voters who live in cities because you're never going to get them, demonize those those people and that part of the country, make it clear, well, that part of the country is run by Democrats, and then speak to the people in the suburbs who are the people who ultimately delivered him the, the victory last time, who he has largely lost, and he believes, I think correctly, that that could be temporary. So pit the people you can't get against the people you can, and in fact, you must get back and use what is clearly racism to say, oh, you know, the cities are going to come for you, which is, I mean, we know what that means and what he's saying, because you're talking to people, if they live in the suburbs, who at some point made a conscious choice to live in the suburbs instead of the city, right? And you're saying to them, oh, well, those people who live in the city are coming for you. And so we can't, as, as you know, you referenced, Ravi, we, we can't take that like coastal cosmopolitan approach and act like that's a meaningless argument. That is a dog whistle that is going to be heard by a lot of people, and we have to counter it directly. And I think that their approach, while totally disingenuous, is pretty strategic, which is, granted, this is a Hail Mary approach, right? But that's what they got. That's, that's where they are. Uh, all the cities are run by Democrats. And they want to get rid of the suburbs. Um, never mind the fact that they put the McCloskeys from St. Louis on to say this, who live in the city of St. Louis. But still, that's their approach. And I worry about that eventually working if we don't respond to it with an argument about the future. Well, we're going to come back to this when we talk about this question of looting in a second. But before we do that, let's start to go piece by piece through uh, a couple key moments, especially from night one. And, and, <laughs> Sorry, I just <laughs> do I have to relive it? Uh... <laughs> there was an echo uh, to each of the speeches on night one um, on this question of cancel culture. Let's just listen to a few key moments. Our founders believed there was nothing more important than protecting our God-given right to think for ourselves. Now, the left, they're trying to cancel all of those founders. So we're not going to tear down monuments and forget the people who built our great nation. Instead, we will learn from our past so we don't repeat any mistakes. We don't give in to cancel culture or the radical and factually baseless belief that things are worse today than in the 1860s or the 1960s. Do you support the cancel culture, the cosmopolitan elites of Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden? who blame America first, do you think America is to blame? Or do you believe in American greatness? Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come. She really needed the virtual fans, like, like in the NBA games right now. <laughs> she needed that crowd noise from MLB that they're piping in. 
So this was obviously a choice that the Trump campaign made, a uh, deliberate choice. Uh, when you poll the American people on this question uh, and you give them a definition of cancel culture, right, which is like withdrawing support uh, for public figures or companies because of something they said that's objectionable, it's two to one as a plurality that Americans seem to think that we've gone too far uh, as a society. And so they're definitely picking up on something here and trying to run with it. Is this a focus that you think is going to yield them any results with that 13% that we're talking about? I think it could. Look, I, I think it goes back to what Jason was saying about the suburbs, which are in many ways the battleground here. There are folks who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 for a lot of reasons uh, in the suburbs, white folks in particular, white women very in very particular, who may be susceptible to an argument like this. And and I think Trump knows that with the economy where it is, with his handling of the uh, of the COVID pandemic where it is, that he cannot run on that. And so he is looking for the culture war and cancel culture and all the things that they've been talking about in these in the convention thus far are basically his attempt to find the culture war that he wants and that hopefully he believes uh, he can win in those suburbs. So uh, people's pocketbooks <laughs> and people's lives uh, are more important than whether somebody gets canceled on Twitter <laughs> uh, to to you know the thirteen percent to your suburban voter to your swing voter as it were. But does it work with some? Certainly. Do do I think that? Um, he's going to continue the strategy, absolutely, because frankly, it's all he's got. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the approach that George W. Bush's campaign took in 2000, right? You were you were not running against an incumbent, you were, but you were running against an incumbent party uh, because Al Gore was the candidate for the Democrats and the economy was pretty good. So they drove wedge issues, right? They, they talked about gay marriage and issues like that. Uh, and so that would that would work, I think, in that scenario. So I think it can work in a bad economy as a decoy for people's anger, but I think it is a stretch to have it used in a bad economy alongside a horribly mismanaged pandemic. And so I think at the larger level, our response is sort of, look, we're not trying to cancel people. We're trying to actually focus on canceling this virus. And when somebody complains to you about cancel culture, I don't think you should feel that you have to defend it. I mean, because look, the Democrats actually didn't invent this, uh, and and actually politics didn't invent this. This this grew out of pop culture. I mean, this didn't start with people talking about founders and monuments. So your view on it politically, in terms of arguing with somebody in that thirteen percent or discussing it with somebody in that thirteen percent, is somewhat irrelevant, right? I would just say that look, you may be somebody who really believes in in quote unquote canceling a lot of these folks and. To some extent, I, I certainly am, but I would I would just say to somebody, look, it's the same on both sides of the aisle. Everybody's trying to cancel each other. This is a thing that's happening in our culture, and you may be for it, you may be against it, I may be for it, I may be against it, but picking a party based on it is like asking a vegetarian to pick their favorite barbecue joint. Like, everybody's trying to do it. Why would we say, well, this party's going to end it? I mean, if that's what you care about a lot, well, then you're going to be out of luck either way. Yeah, and... Here's, here's, I think, the, the quickest and most efficient way I would get at this with relatives is we nominated Joe Biden, right? If there's anybody in the Democratic Party who would be canceled unfairly if we really wanted to go after people, Joe Biden has said a million different things that have made even his most ardent supporters wince every now and then. Um, and he's had, he's had a lot of things that he's had to be accountable for that he'll, he himself would admit to. But yet we still nominated him because in many ways that even though there are parts of this party that I'll admit that make me 
wildly uncomfortable and I think are sometimes unfair, the majority of this coalition that we put together is a, is a fair-minded, inclusive coalition that, as Adisu, you put together last week, includes now, the resistance includes John Kasich. It includes Susan Molinari, my former Republican congresswoman, right? So even though there are parts of the left that I think have a much more aggressive standard for who is allowed in the conversation and who isn't and, and how we should uh, hold people accountable for, for things they've said or done. That is not the Joe Biden presidential campaign. And I think they're going to struggle here to affix this moniker to him. There's also sometimes implicit and sometimes on night one, it was explicit that Democrats hate America and that Republicans love it. Let's look at two clips uh, from night one where two of our speakers made that point. America is a story that's a work in progress. Now is the time to build on that progress and make America even freer, fairer, and better for everyone. That's why it's so tragic to see so much of the Democratic Party turning a blind eye towards riots and rage. The American people know we can do better. America isn't perfect, but the principles we hold dear are perfect. There's one thing I've learned. It's that even on our worst day, we are blessed to live in America. The Republican Party is the pro-America party. President Trump is the pro-America candidate. This election is about who can preserve the values, principles, and institutions that make America great. We're going to come back to Jim Jordan a little bit later. Aren't you relieved, Adisu, that there would be more Jim Jordan? I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to hang up. <laughs> I think we're going to get we're going to get our analytics back from our friends at Wonder Media next week, and there's going to be an abrupt drop off after that sentence that I just uttered uh, on this podcast. But um, it sounds to me like the GOP is giving their own spin, and I'm giving them a lot of credit here on like Obama's like more perfect union argument, which is that we're not perfect. But we're we're making progress, and you Democrats are saying that things have been as bad as they were in the '60s or the 1860s. Um, this is clearly something that they think is going to work. What do we make of this? I'll say I think you know a, a good clip of that Nikki Haley speech could have been at our convention a week ago. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, it's it without question it is an effective political argument to the middle. I think the question is, can you credibly make it as a member of Trump's Republican Party? And I understand why they put Nikki Haley out there to make it and Tim Scott and folks like that to do it. But the real question is, can they overcome people's eyes and people's ears and what they've seen and what they've heard over the course of the last four years? It's almost like they've erased, you know, uh, Charlottesville and the pandemic response and, you know, everything that Trump has done for the last uh, for the last four years to divide and distract us. So do I think it's an effective message? Absolutely, because it's the message of the Democratic Party, which is that we're perfecting our union every day. And and that requires a pluralistic view of what American society is. But Donald Trump is just not a credible messenger in that regard. And frankly, every speaker this is what I was saying way back at the beginning is for every Nikki Haley, you get a you, you get a red meat speech like Kim Guilfoyle, which is just counteracting, you know, that unifying message. It's really effective. I agree. And the other thing that it is, is it is to use a modern term shareable. It is the kind of thing that is so simple and black and white that it gets people to say it to other people in bars and at church. And, you know, I can remember back in 2015 campaigning in Parma, Missouri, and a guy who didn't hardly know anything about me leaning across the table and being like, I can't be with Democrats because y'all hate America. And I, you know, I remember saying what that 
that's news to me. I mean, I didn't really feel like I hated America when I was in Afghanistan. And, and to that guy's credit, he was like, oh, okay, well, maybe you don't hate America, right? But the point is, it's very easily repeatable. And so when people say that we blame America, I think it's important to say, no, 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 look, America is awesome. It's Trump I don't like. I blame Trump. And then I think it's important to put yourself and the person you're talking to on the same side of this and say, look, I think you and I are doing a lot of things right in America. And I think he's screwing it up for both of us. The thing about this argument is it's a really defensive argument, the argument they're making. And so I guess I would just ask somebody if they say, you know, why do we need someone who's a leader to tell us that everything is great and that we we really can't be made much better? I mean, like the Royals have a new manager this year. And his name is Mike Matheny. And I just think about what if Mike Matheny came out every game? We have a losing record right now. And what if in every post-game press conference, he was like, everything is great. And we'd be winning more if people would just stop asking all these questions. No, we'd rather the new manager say, look, this team has a lot of good players. It's got a rich history, a ton of potential. My job is to make us better every single day. And that means being honest about the fact that we're not good enough yet. It strikes me that they want to run against Ta-Nehisi Coates and not Joe Biden. Uh, and you yeah. know what? Ta-Nehisi has a lot of great points. And in a world that, you know, in a better world, we'd be having uh, political discussions and debating out his ideas, which I think in many ways the former president has been doing. You know, he's been engaging that element of the left. But the Republicans don't have Ta-Nehisi on the ticket. As much as they want somebody who has uh, his expansive view of American history and a little bit more critical of an eye towards American history, that's not what they have right now. They have Joe Biden, um, a 70-something-year-old man who's been in the Senate for a long time building coalitions across the aisle, who has admitted himself, including in the most recent Evan Osnos interview, which is really good in The New Yorker, just how far he's come. But it's still not nearly as far along as the Trump campaign would want you to believe. And some people on the left are disappointed by that, right? That's what they're they're dealing with. They're trying to shadow box with people who are not on the ballot. I'll just say, thank God we don't do this show every day because I don't think that we could go through going through clips of every night of this convention. <laughs> <laughs> even even a couple even a couple of them was was a little much for me, honestly. Well, strap in because Jim Jordan's coming up. Jason, like a lot of people, a lot of our listeners, I have a huge stack of books next to my bed. It's just a source of anxiety because I know I'll never have enough time to read all these books. But we have a secret weapon. It's Blinkist. It's the best way to figure out which one of those books you're going to grab off the pile next. Yeah. And so Blinkist gives you access to a huge catalog of books. It summarizes those books for you in what they call Blinks, shorter audio clips that tell you just the key points of books. You can both use these summaries for books that you haven't read before that you just want to get the gist of, but also you can go back over and re-listen to the blinks of books that you've already read if you just want a refresher. And I did that this week with an incredible book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Or you could do what I did, which is be totally intimidated by Sapiens and the size of it and say, you know what, I'm going to start with the blink. Well, with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. All the books you want, all for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com majority54. Try it for free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash majority54 to start your free seven-day trial, and you'll save 25% off, but only 
when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash Majority54. So we've talked before about how great Simply Safe is for all sorts of reasons. You don't have the high prices. You don't have the tricky contracts. Uh, there's really good customer support. So there's a lot of reasons why this is a no-brainer. I'll give you one more. We just did some renovations in our house, and with a lot of security systems, in the spot where we did renovations, you'd have to tear a bunch of stuff out and then put it back in and have the company come out. But with Simply Safe, that's not what we had to do at all. We, you know, it was very easy to just pull it out and then put it right back in ourselves. It's got an arsenal of sensors and cameras to blanket every room, specifically tailored to your home. Professional monitoring uh, keeps watch day and night, and it's ready to send police, fire, medical professionals if there's an emergency. And you could set it up in under an hour, which is remarkable. And you could just peel and stick the sensors wherever you need them, no technician required. And there's no contract, no pushy sales guys or gals, uh, no hidden fees, no fine print. And this starts at $15 a month. So try Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com slash majority54. You get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. There's nothing to lose. That's simplysafe.com slash majority54. For this week in misinformation, we're going to take a closer look at Jim Jordan's speech from night one of the convention. Let's uh, let's listen to a, a small piece of it. Democrats won't let you go to church, but they'll let you protest. Democrats won't let you go to work, but they'll let you riot. And Democrats won't let you go to school, but they'll let you go loot. Before we go into that, I just want to remind listeners that Jim Jordan, you know, somebody who should have probably been removed from office a long time ago for allegedly looking the other way uh, to some serious abuse of children, which uh, for listeners should, you know, I think sound some alarm bells for the QAnon folks out there uh, who are supposed to be concerned about these types of things. But let's actually dissect what he said. Let's start with what he says about what Democrats believe. Won't let you go to church, but they let you protest. Won't let you go to school, but they let you loot. And won't let you go to work, but let you riot. What do we make of those claims? First, this is an offensive thing to say. I mean, they, they keep trotting out Jim Jordan because whether we like it or not, he's an effective communicator at this sort of thing. He's very effective at making this sort of, for lack of a better term, this sort of wedge argument, right? This You're either with the good guys or the bad guys. And 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 it is offensive. And I think if you don't get offended when somebody says something like this to you, then you are validating the argument. I mean, you have to say, like, look, I'm a Democrat. Do you believe these things about me? You have to start there. Because if you're not offended, then it, it seems like this must be true. And then I think you can respond a little more calmly and say, first of all, you can have church outside. Heck, most places you can have it inside. And the idea that, you know, that they let you loot or riot is probably news to the people who have been arrested. And then if the conversation about looting and rioting continues, go into that and say, look, how bad do you think your situation would have to be, you personally, for you to go out and protest in a pandemic? Like how upset, where would things have to go in your life and in your community for that to happen? How bad would the situation have to be for you to loot or riot? And so therefore, how difficult are things for the people who are doing this? Like, can you imagine what would have to happen for you to do that? Yeah. I mean, it's offensive. It's incorrect. It's, I don't know, it's hard to, to find the words for, for it, but it's, it is clearly an attempt to, to paint a picture of what's been happening in the streets since, since May, that is most favorable to Donald Trump and his view of the world. And it is, it's racist. It's about as dog, again, this is one of those dog whistles that's pretty much a, a human whistle because we can all hear it because what he's ultimately saying is Democrats are anti-God. They're, you know, 
black folks who are uh, and people of color who are in the streets who are going to you know take away white privilege as it were and you can't let that happen and we can't let that happen and Donald Trump's all that's standing in the way of of that happening so for the people who are feeling aggrieved and who want to think the worst of what's been happening over the last 3 months then it it is an effective argument i do think though that and the polling confirms this, is that most Americans, a majority of Americans actually are sympathetic to what's been happening in the streets. Most Americans are sympathetic to the fact that we should be wearing masks and not gathering in large gatherings in person, even including religious gatherings, et cetera, et cetera. And so I I just don't think we can be defensive about this. Like this is, we are in the right, first of all, morally, but also politically <laughs> to, to, to push back against the Jim Jordans of the world. And and what he is doing is appealing to a third of the country. We have two thirds of the country that want to hear what we have to say about the pandemic, about the protests and, and what have you. And I do think that people, even those folks in the middle, and maybe even those folks who are right-leaning are more willing in this moment than ever maybe to hear that. Just to give uh, listeners, as you talk to your relatives, a couple of facts here, uh, both Democrats and Republican governors issued stay-at-home orders. Every single Democratic governor did, uh, and 19 of 26 Republican governors did. And this gets to this sort of the reverse Truman aspect of the GOP right now, which is the buck never stops with them, even with their own decisions. Um, second is that uh, this idea that Democrats allow rioting and looting is completely false. Not only did our former president issue a pretty strong statement about it in Barack Obama as uh, there was some indication of, of looting uh, alongside the massive peaceful protests, which is the real story. Um, but if you look at mayors, which they keep claiming that Democratic mayors are allowing violence to happen to people and small businesses, if you look at Keisha Lance Bottoms, who has been super forceful about this, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago, as well, or even what Biden um, and Harris have been saying, uh, it's just simply not true that Democrats are, quote unquote, allowing looters. But to get back to my sort of uh, my, my default stance in this, they're obviously doing this for a reason. And part of it is if you look at polling uh, and you ask Americans how they feel about protests, uh, the overwhelming majority of people support peaceful protests as they're described in them. And the vast majority 90 plus percent oppose, uh, quote unquote, violent protests. And then when you ask them what kind of tactics they like or not, which is not how we should necessarily go about, um, you know, what is a good strategy to protest or not is not necessarily just polling people because, you know, I think a lot of data showed MLK, for instance, was not very popular at the time. But the numbers are pretty strong in saying that the some of the tactics that you're seeing at night by a small amount of people are wildly unpopular. And then when you see that some of that stuff playing out in places like Wisconsin, you could see the Republicans raising an eyebrow saying, all right, this is an opportunity for us. And so it's just something we need to be vigilant about. Yeah, I think there's a really important line to walk here that is you can say that rioting and looting and any kind of violence is wrong without dismissing the underlying tension and issues at play that can cause that to happen. Like you can, as a Democrat, you can do both of those things. You can say, this should not happen. I don't condone this. And at the same time, it says a lot about what's happening in this in, in a community where looting happens, and we need to address those things. Like you can do both of those things at the same time. Normally we give it a lot of awards on this show to uh, members of the GOP who go above and beyond, but given that we had such a fruitful discussion of the convention, we're just going to give a participation trophy to every member of the GOP uh, who participated in this convention because they really outdid themselves. But what I want to do to challenge the listeners is go on Twitter 
And why don't you tell us who should have won the awards this week uh, and just tag the Majority 54 account. And if you have particularly fun spin on things, uh, we'll mention you next week and, and give you a shout out. <laughs> well, Adisu, we have this segment that we call unsolicited campaign advice, which is exactly what it sounds like, where we just uh, give our guests an opportunity to bestow some wisdom on the folks out there uh, working hard to help elect Democrats around the country. Do you have anything for us this week? What we're seeing right now is Democrats are in a position of strength, but make no mistake about it. We've referenced it a couple times. This thing is not in the bag for Joe Biden. It's not in the bag for down ballot Democrats either. And what I think is most important, and sometimes we forget, is that the most important communication that can be done in this campaign is not from the top, from a candidate. It's from neighbor to neighbor and from friend to friend, family member to family member. And so do not think for a second that that text to your friend, that phone call to your to your family member, that Facebook post, uh, that tweet doesn't actually have an effect. For your circle of influence, that is how people get their information. And particularly, do not be afraid to fight the smears and fight the lies one by one. One of my friends from college actually texted me a couple of days ago that he was going back and forth on somebody's Facebook page about some lie. I don't even remember which one it was. He was frustrated that he had gotten, quote unquote, sucked into it. And I was just like cheering him on. I was like, do not, if you don't do it, who will? <laughs> if you don't fight back, who will? That is how misinformation gets spread. And in my opinion, as we get closer to the election, misinformation about what, who Democrats are, what Democrats stand for, about how to vote, where to vote, et cetera, et cetera, may be the number one hurdle between us being successful and us not being successful in this election. And so do not feel like what you are doing, however small it may feel, is in vain because you are the campaign. As much as those TV ads that the Biden campaign or the Trump campaign is putting up there, you are the campaign. So please keep doing it. DC, we always end with a segment we call Grab an Oar, which is where we invite you to share with our listeners some action that they can take, something tangible they can do right now. I could plug More Than a Vote, which we launched in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor's murder. And uh, More Than the Vote is focused on lifting the structural barriers to Black folks voting this November and, and broader past that, Black political empowerment. You've seen the athletes, not just LeBron, but athletes across the spectrum, you know, lifting their voice in this moment and being willing to use their platforms to actually push for change. And the first one we're tackling is is voter suppression in black communities and trying to, to overcome the, the structural barriers uh, that black people have faced for centuries, <laughs> uh, decades, and that now, even if they're not explicit, have been more and more implicit. So follow what we're doing. More Than a Vote is the name of the organization at More Than a Vote on basically every social medium you might see. And Got a lot more exciting things coming. One of the big ones that I want to plug is um, poll working, which I don't know if you guys have talked about on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, but oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we are about to lean in very hard to recruit young people, young people of color to volunteer to work the polls and sort of step in for the the older generation that has been doing this for for decades before it's our turn now to, to step up and do that and make sure that the election runs smoothly, regardless of who wants to vote, but particularly in communities of color where um, those are the polling places that are most in danger of being closed and having a suppressive effect if that happens. So um, a lot going on with More Than the Vote. Follow us uh, certainly on social media, but my call to action for all of you is whether you do it through More Than the Vote or, or not, if you're a young, healthy person, 
uh, you know, wear a mask and go work your polling site uh, this October and, and ultimately on election day, November 3rd, because that's how we're going to have a smooth election and make sure that everybody who wants to cast a ballot can. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks, man, for being a part of this. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. I look forward to trolling Ravi on Instagram more now, uh, <laughs> just like ever. I had There's a void in my life since you started working on the convention that, that now you can fill in the, in the month. Yeah, ahead. I'm back. I'm back. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you can follow Adisu on Twitter at ASDIM. If you, if you like sports and you like politics, you'll like my Twitter feed. And then you can troll Ravi on Instagram or Twitter at, at Ravi M. Gupta. I'm at Jason Kander on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The show is at Majority54 on Twitter. If you haven't already subscribed, please do it right now. Don't forget to rate and review the show because it helps get the word out, lets us know how we're doing. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. We want to tell you about a podcast called Kerning Cultures. They tell stories from the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between, like the story following a Lebanese cave diver into the depths of the deepest cave in the world, or one man's mission to revive specialty coffee in Yemen amidst the current war. The Guardian calls it the This American Life of the Middle East. Listen to Kerning Cultures, spelled K-E-R-N-I-N-G, Kerning Cultures. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.